the heir to one of America's most iconic families, Lost at Sea. A newlywed couple enters the Grand Canyon, but doesn't exit. A group of inmates escape the world's highest security prison and vanish. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after years spent searching for answers, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm teaming up with Parcast to explore the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Check out the first episode of our series here and afterwards follow Disappearances to catch a new episode every Thursday. Listen free only on Spotify. Before we begin, I want to set the record straight. Nothing disappears. The missing don't vanish into thin air. Saying someone disappeared is just a way of saying we don't know anything. We don't know why they're gone, what happened to them, where they went, how they are, and in some cases, who they really were. But the answers still exist somewhere. They still matter. And so do the missing. So the question is, if we can't find them, what can we do? My name's Sarah Turney. For those who don't know me, I didn't choose to be here exactly. My older sister Alyssa was taken from me in 2001. After spending years searching for answers, I advocated for her case with the help of social media and the internet. Police arrested my father for her murder in August 2020. The trial is currently underway. Now, it's hard for me to put into words why I want to do this show. But there's this saying I like. It goes, people only really leave us when we say their names for the last time. This is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. From abductions to prison breaks to murder to second chances, I'll embark on a journey to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a six-year-old boy from New York City. Without any choice in the matter, he became the most famous missing child in American history. His name is Aton Pates. When it comes to Aton Pates' story, there's still a long list of unanswered questions. And at the very top of that list is why Aton? And not just why did he disappear, why did the media choose him? To answer this, we have to go back to the 70s, when New York City is around $10 billion in debt. Abandoned complexes, townhouses, and skyscrapers litter the five boroughs. The rate of burglaries, rapes, and murders have nearly tripled in recent years. 
the Son of Sam murders have catapulted the city's sins into an international spotlight. And the NYPD now have a new nickname for their hometown, Fear City. The chaos has driven nearly 1 million New Yorkers beyond city limits in search of brighter horizons. But it's also fueling an industry. Media outlets like the New York Post and the Daily News celebrate the depravity filling their pages and lining their pockets. May 25th, 1979 arrives during a slow news cycle. It's the Friday before Memorial Day weekend. And in Soho, Julie and Stan Pates have a lot to do. They've made plans to visit their neighbor's home upstate, but they haven't packed. Stan's a photographer. He worked late last night on a photo shoot. So as the alarm goes off, Julie lets him keep sleeping. She'll be the one to wake up the kids and get them ready. Things start slowly. Julie's two-year-old son, Ari, had a friend stay the night. Her eight-year-old daughter, Shira, is most likely laying in bed, dreaming of ways to get out of school. But Aton, her middle child, shoots out of bed, ready to start his day. For the past year, Aton's been asking if he can walk to the bus stop alone, and he finally has the green light. For the most part, Julie and Stan encourage their kids to be self-reliant. Julie runs a daycare out of their apartment. Aton making his own breakfast every morning buys her much-needed time to prepare for her clients' arrivals. Sure, walking the streets of New York alone at six is not the same thing as making toast and chocolate milk. But according to Aton, plenty of his friends do it all the time. The bus stop's not far, just two blocks at the corner of West Broadway and Prince Street. Even with his little legs, the trip shouldn't take more than five minutes. Nobody remembers how or when they agreed that today would be the day. But Julian Stan decided it would ultimately be good for Aton to help build his confidence. Aton might be adventurous, but he's also easily scared. When Aton arrives in the kitchen on the morning of May 25th, he feels like a different kid. He's fully dressed and wide-eyed, wearing a t-shirt, blue pants, and a blue corduroy jacket, and light blue racing sneakers with fluorescent green lightning bolts running down the sides. To top it all off, he has his signature piece on, a pilot's cap he bought from a yard sale himself. He loves it so much, he occasionally wears it to bed. Big block letters spell out future flight captain above the brim. After breakfast, he tosses his already packed lunch into a blue tote bag painted with white elephants and slings it over his shoulder. He's almost ready to leave when he remembers. A friendly repairman gave him a dollar yesterday, and he wants to use it to buy a soda from the corner bodega. In a flash, he's back, dollar in hand, excitedly waiting to leave. When it's time to go, Aton bounds down the three flights of stairs ahead of Julie and stops at the front door of their building. He's only three foot four, so he can't reach the handle. He needs his mother to open it for him. Outside, the sky is overcast. Last minute reservations bubble up inside Julie, but she knows how much Aton wants to overcome this milestone before first grade's over. And there's only so many days left. Time is ticking. It's fine, Mom. I can do it, Aton says. It's 8 a.m. The bus is leaving in 10 minutes. 
Julie tells him to come home right after school to help pack for the weekend trip. After kissing her son goodbye, Julie watches his small frame take careful steps like he's counting each pace. Looking up, she can see parents and other kids already gathering at the bus stop up ahead. It's only 500 feet or so away. She lingers until he gets about halfway there, but she doesn't watch him enter the bodega. Ari and his playmate are upstairs unattended, and she still needs to prepare for a day of childcare, so she steps back inside, locks the front door, and climbs the three flights of stairs to her apartment. By the time she's in the shower and the water washes over her face, she figures Aton must have already boarded the bus. If something had happened, one of the other parents would have called. If he doesn't show up to school, a teacher will call. There's no reason to worry. Really, what could happen to her six-year-old son in the span of 10 minutes? For Julie Pates, that answer won't come for at least another 30 years. It's 3.30 p.m. and nobody has called. No parents, no teachers. Which means Aton's solo adventure must have gone off without a hitch. But for some reason, he's not home yet. Julie sticks her head out of the window to check if he's walking down Prince Street. When she doesn't see him, she calls Karen Altman, a friend and neighbor who was supposed to pick Aton up from the bus that day, along with her own daughter, Chelsea. It wouldn't be unusual if he went over to their house for a bit. But Karen tells Julie, no, Aton's not over. She hasn't seen him. Karen asks Chelsea where Aton went after the final bell. And from the other end of the line, Julie hears the young girl's response. Aton wasn't in school today. In five words, Julie's world shatters. Meanwhile, Stan Pates is sitting in a photo studio uptown on his lunch break, eating a cheeseburger. Before he finishes, a call comes in. It's Julie. She tells him, Aton's missing. She's already called the police. Stan cuts his shift short and heads home, but not before finishing his burger. In all likelihood, Aton will turn up before he gets off the train in Soho. But then, Stan gets off the train, arrives home, and Aton's still not there. He talks to the police, goes to his dark room, pulls a proof sheet with 36 tiny photos on it from an old shoot with Aton. He shows the pictures to strangers at the local bodega, the playground, the market, nearby stores. Aton never turns up. By nightfall, the NYPD launches a full-scale search effort, complete with 100 police officers and helicopters. By 1.15 a.m., the bloodhounds are brought in. The Pates' apartment is a blur of uniforms and activity. Julie and Stan feel like they've entered an alternate reality where a spontaneous glitch has erased all traces of their son. And to make matters worse, they're being blamed for it. First, there's questions from police. Any enemies? Why do you have so many photos of your son? Why is his shirt off in this one? Did he have any reason to run away? Which really means, did you give him 
a reason to run away. The questions are routine, but knowing that doesn't make answering them any easier. Their son's gone. They don't know what happened. And as every uniformed officer in their apartment knows, they're working on a timeline of exponential decay. With every passing hour, the likelihood of finding a missing child Aton's age alive plunges closer and closer to zero. It's past the 24-hour mark when a friend asks Stan, have you thought about press? The friend has connections at the City Hall press office. He'd be happy to pull in some favors. Julian and Stan are hesitant. Their apartment has already turned into investigation headquarters. They're not sure if they can handle an onslaught of reporters. Until an officer working the case tells Stan, I think you should do it. If your friend knows people personally, you might be able to hold on to a little control. So Stan gives the go-ahead, with one caveat. Just ask them to be careful with Julie. 48 hours after his disappearance, Aton's face is plastered all over the city, on missing person posters, in the tabloids, in the Sunday edition of the New York Times. The accompanying portraits taken by Stan showcase Aton's blue eyes, infectious smile, and mop of dirty blonde hair in high resolution. The photos do more than capture people's attention. They drive leads. Tips come pouring into hotlines. Over the next year, officials chase countless tips. But I'm not going to. See, I know they go nowhere. New York is a racially diverse place. The Pateses are Jewish, and they lived in a community with a sizable queer population. There are too many red herrings rooted in desperation and bigotry. So instead of following the misguided pathways, I want to put you in Julie and Stan's shoes for a bit. Two months after your son's disappearance, as his story becomes national news, you still top investigators' list of suspects. In official congressional records, politicians deliver calls to action about bringing him home. Reporters keep knocking on your door. All you want is your son back, so you keep answering their questions. Even as one asks you, would you mind working up a few tears for me now so I don't have to come back and bother you again when they find the body? Then there's the unsolicited comments from strangers. How terrible you must feel, especially since it was all your fault. The gossip about whether you murdered your child. The calls to tip lines with a young boy's voice on the other end pleading desperately for his father's help. Calls that turn out to be cruel pranks. Seven months after your son's disappearance, you attend a family Christmas party in Massachusetts. It's filled with people who share your blood, but stumble over their words as they talk to you. Too afraid to ruin the holiday, they conversationally erase Aton from the family tree. You avoid all conversations of moving on. Even if you wanted to, there are too many reminders everywhere. You and your son have entered the American zeitgeist, and there's no coming back from it. Even as the missing posters turn to still missing posters, and the We Miss You Aton graffiti on the corner bodega fades from prolonged exposure to the elements. Every time you smile in public, the glares of strangers remind you that joy doesn't belong to you anymore. In their eyes, you deserve to have your daycare business go under. You can't be trusted with kids. And yet, you still have two other children. 
ones you can reach out and touch, who are neither dead nor waiting to be found, and you feel guilty for spending all your time on what's most likely a lost cause. But then, in March 1980, you hear a breaking news story about a boy named Steven Stainer found alive after being missing for seven years. It renews a glimmer of hope and makes your mind spiral with questions like, what if Aton, against all odds, is still out there too and he needs me? Or worse, what if he thinks I'm not trying my hardest to find him? Or worse, what if I'm not? That's the thing about unsolved missing person cases that everyone talks about, isn't it? The open-endedness. Even when you think you know, you just don't know until there's a body to welcome home or to bury. In a press conference days before the first anniversary of Aton's disappearance, Stan Pates talks about the not knowing as a psychological wound that will never heal. Julie Pates compares it to a fate worse than death. But tired of being both victims and victimized, they start using the platform that's been thrusted on them to talk about necessary reforms. They tell reporters, schools need to let parents know when their child doesn't show up. Law enforcement needs to actually update their databases. As Stan learns, the FBI keeps better records of stolen license plates than they do missing children. They appear on talk shows with parents of other missing kids. They combine forces and together they catch the attention of American legislators. Three years after Aton's disappearance, the Pates' efforts start to pay off on a national scale. The Missing Children's Assistance Act establishes federal grant programs to help fund state and local law enforcement looking for missing children. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children becomes fully operational. And the day before the fourth anniversary of Aton's disappearance, one of the most powerful men in the world releases the following statement. I, Ronald Reagan, President of the United States of America, do hereby proclaim May 25th, 1983 as Missing Children Day. I urge every American family to take the proper precautions to protect their children. The proclamation leads to a national wave of interest in missing children cases. Five years after Aton's disappearance, his portrait starts appearing on milk cartons across the country, underneath the word, missing. It's the same portrait from the original flyers. On the same cartons, Aton used to pour every morning to make his chocolate milk. Shortly after, the New York City Police Foundation puts his face on an electronic billboard in Times Square. In time, Aton enters the background of pictures taken by strangers from all around the world, later to be tucked away into their family photo albums. By 1985, most Americans have seen Aton's face. The attention is heartening, but at the end of the day, Julie and Stan are no closer to finding their son. And there's a problem. In photos, Aton will always be six years old. But if he's alive, he's 12 now. He spent more years without his family than with them. And if they're being completely honest, Julie and Stan don't know what their son looks like anymore. Any day now, they could pass him on the street without a backwards glance. For all they know, they already have. 
By 1988, logbooks detailing every hotline tip they've received cover most sitting surfaces in Julian Stan's apartment. It's a museum of dead ends, false hope, and hoaxes. Psychic visions, ransom scams, the scattered thoughts of lonely people calling just to talk. The vast majority are suspected sightings, placing Aton in various corners of the world, thousands of miles away from each other, often at the same time. After a while, the Pates lose faith that they'll ever get that one call that will finally break through all the noise. And then it happens. It's September 1988, nine years and three months since Aton's disappearance. The voice on the other end of the line belongs to the assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Stuart Grabois. He has promising news that Stan should hear in person. It's about an old suspect, a name Stan has not forgotten, Jose Ramos. Six years earlier, police searched a drainage tunnel in the Bronx after two boys claimed Ramos tried to lure them inside. In the darkness, officials found a makeshift home with piles of trash, porn, and an inflatable sex doll. The most chilling discovery was a stack of photographs, all of underage children. All male, all under 10, many with blonde hair and blue eyes. Ramos appeared with a few of the kids, cheek to cheek, smiling for the camera. One of the boys looked like a face officers had seen many times before. He could pass for a slightly older Aton, who at the time just so happened to have been missing for three years. During questioning, police learned two pieces of information that made Ramos a suspect in Aton's case. First, on the day Aton disappeared, Ramos was living in Alphabet City only about a mile and a half away from Soho. And second, Ramos had a connection to the Pates family. The Pateses hired a friend of his to walk their kids home from school during a recent bus strike. In the end, Julian Stan told police the picture found was not Aton, though the lead investigator walked away certain that Ramos was somehow involved in Aton's disappearance. But the reality was, nobody could prove it. Ramos insisted that he had never met Aton Pates in his life, and for years, the police found no evidence to claim otherwise. No crime scene, no witnesses, no body, just a hunch. Now, six years later, Grabois sits Stan down and tells him that Ramos made a confession that could finally connect him to Aton. The story goes like this. May, 1979. A boy around the age of six was playing with a tennis ball in Washington Square Park, about a 10-minute walk from the Pates' home in Soho. The boy had blonde hair, blue eyes, and shoes with a bright stripe on them. Ramos approached him, asked him if he'd like to go back to his apartment. After the boy said yes, they did. Ramos wanted to sexually assault him, tried to even, but the boy stopped the abuse before it could begin. So, Ramos gave him apple juice, and they took a cab back to Soho together. Once they arrived, the boy wanted to see his aunt who lived in Washington Heights. So Ramos walked him to 6th Avenue. He put him on a train heading uptown. And that's the last Ramos saw of the boy. Until he saw a picture of a missing kid on television a day or two later, who he was 90% sure was the same boy from the park. 
I can't imagine what it felt like for Stan to hear that story. But I imagine it hurts even worse when he finds out the confession won't hold water in a court of law. As tangible as it feels, Ramos only admitted to spending an afternoon with a boy he intended to rape, but set free. A boy who he was only 90% sure was Aton. As a result, the first time Jose Ramos sees the inside of a jail cell, it's not for any crime related to Aton Pates. In 1990, a judge convicts Ramos of sexually molesting an eight-year-old Pennsylvania boy, confirming he is a man capable of monstrous actions. Twice a year, for every year Ramos spends in jail, Stan sends a message to Ramos's cell. He types the words on the back of old copies of Aton's old missing person posters. What did you do to my little boy? He never gets a response. By 1999, Julie is past seeking justice, but Stan's not. As the New York Post publishes a retrospective under the headline, Aton Pates' fate still a mystery 20 years later, Stan approaches his wife with a proposition. What if they ask a judge to formally declare their son dead? If they can't have their son back, it'll at least allow them to pursue a civil lawsuit against Ramos. A jury won't have to find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. A judge can hold him liable based on a preponderance of evidence. In 2001, the judge signs the death certificate. Three years later, the civil suit goes to trial, where the New York Supreme Court finds Jose Ramos liable for the wrongful death and abduction of Aton Pates. A judge orders Ramos to pay the Pates' $2 million in emotional damages. Ramos doesn't have the money, so the Pates never collect on the debt. But it's a symbolic victory. And for the next eight years, it passes as an ending. The closest thing to closure the Pates will get. Then in 2012, the police receive a tip about a man whose name has never come up before, Pedro Hernandez. According to the informant, he killed Aton Pates. In 2012, officials drive to Pedro Hernandez's home in Mapleshade, New Jersey, and bring him to the Camden County Prosecutor's Office for questioning. There, he makes the following confession. Before I play it, a warning. It's a little graphic. When he went in front of me, I grabbed him by the neck. And I started to choke him. I, I was nervous, I was, my limbs were jumping. I wanted to let go, but I just couldn't let go. I, it was like something, I felt like something just took over me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it was like, I felt like it, some, something just took over me and I just choked him. When I was choking him, he was going. The year Aton went missing, Hernandez was 19 years old. He worked as a stock boy for a bodega near the Pates' apartment. In the same confession, Hernandez tells officials he lured Aton into the bodega's basement with the promise of a soda. As you heard, he tells them he choked Aton to death for reasons he doesn't understand. He placed Aton's body in a plastic bag, 
then a box, before abandoning the box about a block and a half away, amid a pile of trash, near 113 Thompson Street. Before Hernandez leaves the prosecutor's office, an official hands him Aton's picture. He apparently has a hard time looking at it at first, but he later writes a short confession on the back, something to the effect of, I killed him, or I strangled him. Five years later, a jury convicts Hernandez of the second-degree murder and first-degree abduction of Aton Pates. Stan Pates takes the stand to address Pedro Hernandez himself, saying, After all these years, we finally know what dark secret you had locked in your heart. You threw him in the garbage. You are the monster in your nightmares. The god you pray to will never forgive you. After a judge sentences Hernandez to 25 years in prison, Julian Stan have the 2004 charges brought against Jose Ramos dismissed. As of recording this episode, Pedro Hernandez is currently serving out his time. Now, I'd love to end the story here, but I don't feel like I can. I really relate to the Pates's. I know what it feels like to need closure. I can imagine after so many years, there comes a point where the Pates's just wanted an ending. Any ending. But if I made this podcast 10 years ago, you and I would have walked away with an entirely different conclusion, an entirely different culprit. And the 2017 conviction of Pedro Hernandez is more controversial than you might think. 2017 was the second trial for Hernandez. The first took place two years earlier in 2015 and ended in a hung jury. Neither presented any forensic evidence. The prosecution only had the two confessions Hernandez made, one caught on tape, one written. In some US states, it's against the law to convict someone based on a confession alone. And after leaving the Camden County Prosecutor's Office, Hernandez retracted both confessions. Later, his attorneys made the case that they were fabrications made under pressure by police. The confession you heard came at the tail end of an unusually long seven-hour interrogation. And only after officials reportedly told Hernandez that if he did confess, he'd make a doctor's appointment where he'd be given his crucial daily medications. Prior to that, Hernandez supposedly maintained that he'd never met Aton before. But it's impossible to say for sure. Police only turned on the cameras once Hernandez appeared ready to confess. I don't know why police would have pushed so hard if officials already thought Ramos was responsible, but it's worth mentioning that Hernandez had been diagnosed with a schizotypal personality disorder. He suffered from delusions and hallucinations. According to his daughter's testimony, he often saw shadows, a so-called lady in white, and on more than one occasion believed demons were choking him. He once put a dead tree branch in the ground, watered it, and thought it would grow. With an IQ of around 70, Hernandez could qualify as intellectually disabled by standards set by the American Psychiatric Association. This raised legitimate doubt around whether he understood what it meant to waive his Miranda rights when officials brought him in in the first place. There's never been a motive presented for why Hernandez killed Aton, which is unusual in abduction and murder cases involving children. According to experts, there's usually at least some sexual component to it. Then, there's the tip that brought Hernandez into the Camden County Prosecutor's Office in the first place. 
It was based on a vague admission of wrongdoing Hernandez allegedly made during a prayer group in the 1980s, decades earlier. Now, I'm not here to tell you what to believe. To be honest, I don't even know what I believe myself. As I said, when it comes to Aton Pates, there are lots of questions that remain unanswered. But that's the thing about unsolved missing person cases that everyone talks about. The open-endedness. Why Aton? Why did the media choose him? Press connections? Nice photos? A slow news cycle? Luck? His age? His skin color? The fear his story instills? Fear sells. And on its face, Aton's story is terrifyingly simple. An innocent child leaves for school and is never seen again. It really feels like he just vanished into thin air. What I can tell you is I chose Aton's story because of the role the media plays. I know firsthand how important getting a story out there can be in a missing person case. The attention paid to Aton's case brought about so much good, but it also exploited a family's trauma and threatened to tear them apart. More than three decades after Aton's disappearance, the Pateses were hanging signs on their front door begging to be left alone. And on a larger scale, the coverage Aton's case received effectively shattered an entire country's trust. For millions of Americans, hearing about what happened to Aton meant that the same thing could happen to any child, anywhere, at any time. The words stranger danger suddenly entered the American lexicon. Neighbors locked their doors. The beginning of helicopter parenting took root. But children didn't start going missing in 1979. The country just started to care. For me, the story of Aton Pates is a reminder that how I tell the stories of the missing matters. Because at the center of all of them are real people, from all walks of life, dropped in impossible circumstances. They deserve their stories to be told with nuance and empathy. They rarely have clean endings. But no two cases can be considered the same. And if we keep talking about them, the missing won't have to leave us twice. Next episode, a disappearance that couldn't be any more different. When Michael Rockefeller goes missing in 1963, his family has all of the resources in the world to find him and they give up after only nine days. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. 
Sound design by Ron Shapiro, with assistance by Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Allie Wicker, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to follow Disappearances free on Spotify. You can find a new episode weekly every Thursday.